This is Annie Grace, and you're listening to this Naked Mind podcast, where without judgment, pain, or rules, we explore the role of alcohol in our lives and culture. This episode is sponsored by the Live Alcohol Experiment, a 30-day science-based and compassion-led journey where you learn to develop a healthier relationship with alcohol without relying on willpower. Why? Because the truth is that willpower runs out. Instead, you learn how to focus on what you gain, not what you give up, so you can feel good about the decisions you make without shame or guilt. With the 30 days of video training, virtual daily coaching, and a private and supportive community, you get that and so much more. Join us today to get happier, healthier, and to take back your life. Your live alcohol experiment starts on the 1st, so sign up at livealcoholexperiment.com. Hi, this is Annie Grace, and welcome to this Naked Mind podcast, and I'm here with Maggie. Hi, Maggie. Hi, Annie. Oh, it's so good to have you on. It's great to be here. So why don't you sort of take us um, back to the beginning for you with, with alcohol? Where did it all start? Yeah, thank you. Well, so the beginning. Um, when I was uh, a teenager and a young adult, um, I really didn't drink very much. I had, you know, the odd beer in high school kind of thing, illicit yeah. thing here and there at a party, but I mostly, I just found it sort of disgusting. I had grown up in um, pretty much alcohol-free homes, so I really wasn't used to it. I wasn't, you know, it wasn't a thing for me. Um, I did not like being around drunk people. And for myself, I found like, I didn't like the feeling of slurring or getting wobbly. So throughout my twenties, I was, or throughout my early twenties, I was pretty much teetotal. I really only got used to drinking, um, in my late twenties after my daughter was born. Um, I was living in London at the time. Um, and obviously the drinking culture there is like a pretty massive thing. Um, it was just everywhere and suddenly it was fun. You know, it was like the way that people would connect and socialize. Um, in fact, like I was working at a magazine company at the time and, um, it had a very drinky culture, uh, mm. which is not unusual for British companies, um, especially I suppose in media. Um, but you know, everybody would all kind of go to the pub after work pretty much every day and certainly every Friday and get this, like once a month, the company would host what they called their company lunch, which was supposed to be like our big meeting where the owners would share all the news about the company. So at, the, at this company lunch, there was no food served, but there was free wine and beer. <laughs> wow. <laughs> which was just like, oh, everybody loved it. It was very popular. Um, so, uh, so I got into that and by, you know, a few years later, I was, drinking normally by British standards, which is, you know, to say that I was drinking, I think quite a lot. Um, and then as I moved through my thirties, I was really pretty much drinking wine almost every night, which again was just considered normal. Um, all my friends drank wine every night. Nobody thought it was a problem. And at that time, um, I had, I was back in Canada where I'm from in Vancouver and I had a lot of stress in my job. I was working at a daily newspaper. Um, and what I noticed was that just like some nights I would just hit the wine really hard. Um, I did notice that even though everybody was normalizing it, I was the one who was tended to be thirstier than everyone else. I would drink faster and more often. Um, and, um, you know, and sometimes like by 
I, 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 I would have been like ready for bed by 8 p.m. But that doesn't necessarily mean I stopped and went to bed. Um, I, I developed that thing of like not having an off switch. Yeah. Um, so then came hangovers, of course. And um, what I hated most about that was just feeling impaired in my brain, my mental acuity, just losing all my sharpness and my productivity. Um, I would still show up to work, um, but it was just really hard to think clearly or be productive. And my emotions were all over the place. So I was just, you know, more anxious, more fragile, more reactive to everything. And I think at that time during my sort of late thirties, I was probably hung over like four or five times a week. Yeah. Which like, you know, looking back, I'm like, I do not know how I functioned and it was did all the like things normal that... to feel like crap. Yeah. It's just like, I can do this. I can do this. And, um, it was just, yeah, it just became just part of my, it was part of my way of being. Um, and then I noticed that like on the rare nights when I didn't drink at all and they were, you know, honestly pretty rare. Um, I would just feel really restless. Like mm. what is happening here like you know like I would just feel on edge and when I noticed that it's like you know, I would try to intentionally take a night off and like feel super restless and you know irritable and that bothered me because I could see um you know the changes that it was having on me and how used to it I had become how dependent on it I had become um but through all this I really I didn't consider myself an alcoholic. And I did obviously, I, well, not obviously, I think, you know, like a, many people who find themselves in that situation will do the Google, you know, what is the, yeah. the list of questions. Um, but I, I didn't really relate to that label. I didn't want that label um, because I was really high functioning. You know, I was still doing all my things in my life. Um, and I think that the fact that, um, that I didn't relate to the label of alcoholic made it harder for me to even like, consider that maybe I should make an attempt to stop. Yeah. Um, I just thought my drinking wasn't like that bad compared to what I thought was like a real alcoholic. Um, you know, if I think about my consequences, um, I never like crashed a car or woke up in bed with a stranger or got fired. And, and I say this with so much compassion for those of us who have, because I understand that it's there for the, but for the grace of God, um, but that didn't happen to me. Um, instead, I had kind of like the other problem, which was that I loved it. And I was, I, I was considered a fun person to drink with. Um, my tendency was just to like, I would get really chatty, <laughs> even chattier <laughs> and um, affectionate. And, you know, um, I was like a typical party girl. And I was, I think I really loved that side of my personality. And I was really attached to that part of my identity. Um, so like when I was drinking, I was really like outgoing and flirty. Um, I didn't ever get obnoxious or rude. Um, if anything, I was just like my one Achilles heel was like, I could be a really big oversharer in that stage. Just, just no boundaries, um, and no filter. Um, and so sometimes like I would wake up really full of anxiety the next day or shame. Cause I'd be like, Oh God, what did I say? And to whom did I say it? And you yeah. know, I would say to my friends, like, I'm so embarrassed at, you know, or, you know, like one, on one occasion, um, you know, like I, I do not remember, remember the cab ride home and, and they were like, Oh God, you were talking up a storm to the cab driver. And I'm like, what was, was I awful? And they're like, no, you were charming. 
and, and to which my, my answer was always like, okay, thank God for auto charm because right. I, I was not there. I don't know who was being charming, but I was really not there. So, um, but you know what, like even for lively, charming drunks, like people like me, um, there's a limit to the charm, right? Like I, I knew even at the time, um, and of course my friends who are also drinking are not going to notice this as much, but sober people would have, it's like, yeah, I would get like loud and repetitive and, um, you know, just not listening or, you know, I would lose all my ability to speak articulately, um, and I, what used to bother me the most, like I said earlier, was like, just, I know that I would tend to be overly open with people who really hadn't earned that place in my life. And looking back on that um, would really upset me. Um, and just wasting hours and hours on situations and like, let's go on to the next thing. It's like, then you wake up and like, there was no value in those hours. <laughs> like this was, nobody was being um, clever or entertaining or fun, um, you know, and then just the hangovers and the shame were just brutal. Yeah. Um, so I think that um, as for like, when I started really accepting or understanding that it was, you know, when it was really started bothering me, it was, like well before my 40th birthday by this time I'd probably been drinking fairly heavily for over 10 years yeah. and at that stage I was like noticing myself so I would notice that um hmm, you are really aware of how much wine is in the bottle and how much everybody got in their glass and whether you're drinking faster than others and whether someone has got more than you and how much is left in the house and do we have more and if we don't have more do I have any at home for when I get home um and um I, you know this is embarrassing for me to admit because it just anyway it just it, it, it's something I'm embarrassed by but honestly um I had all those thoughts um, and I was living in Canada at the time in Vancouver um, and in Canada, it's really not that easy to buy alcohol. It's not like it is here in the United States. I live in Los Angeles now where you can get anything anywhere, um, but you have to go to like a government liquor store or a private wine shop, which usually has, you know, and they're few and far between and their hours are not that um, approachable. So I was always like aware of like, what's my route home? Am I going to be passing a liquor store? Can I stop in and get a bottle of wine? Is it too late? Like all those things. So, you know, even though everybody around me was telling me, you're fine, you're fine. I really, I really did not feel fine. Um, I was increasingly just feeling like I am out of control with this. And, um, and it was distressing to me. Um, you know, it was just distressing. Um, I think that I felt it, I started noticing that I was getting increasingly um, anxious around anytime there was alcohol in a public setting, because of course I was going to take part, um, like at a work event or something. And, you know, I remember one time when a colleague of mine, you know, we were all out on some group thing and everybody was drinking, but then my colleague said to me, um, you know, it was just like a well-meaning joke, but like, oh, you know, we really had to pour you into a cab at the end of the evening. And I, I just felt, um, I just felt so ashamed. Um, you know, I think back in London, my London days in my early twenties, that kind of comment wouldn't have bothered me because like, basically that was normal for everyone. And also I was younger. Um, but by this stage, you know, I'm pushing 40, I'm a professional woman, I'm in a high profile 
role at a newspaper in my city and um, and I had some visibility and I did not want to be known for being drunk. Yeah. Just not, not something that I felt like I wanted to be about and how I wanted to operate in the world and be. Um, so I really started dreading those public work events because for me, so whether it was like a work party or like I was often invited to galas or opening opening nights of things. I was the arts editor at the newspaper there. Um, and I would just get so anxious because uh, not having a drink wasn't an option or, you know, not usually. So I would have, so, and then I would just be so anxious about, am I managing my consumption in a way that appears, you know, acceptable? Um, and then, you know, could anyone tell if I was tipsy and I would just be so ashamed. So so that was the stage when I tried really hard to moderate. And um, as you know, I know you've talked about a lot, it's like moderating is, is just so stressful. It's so stressful. And for me, yeah. it just didn't work. Um, I broke so many promises to myself. Um, you know, even if I would manage to like get out of the event still relatively together, then I, there was almost like a backlash, get home and have like three glasses of wine before you go to sleep. It's, 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 it's crazy. But I think that um, for me, part of the problem that made it really hard to get push away from it was like, I wasn't a train wreck when I was drinking, like what I, I, I really, really, I liked it. And I know that it's, you know, maybe it's a little controversial to talk about that side of it, but I loved it. You know, there were times when I loved it. I loved, I was not a person who drank to drown my sorrows. I really drank to kind of like get high and I did, I would get super high energy, vivacious and just have all this euphoria in my brain. And so it wasn't punishing when I was going through it. And, you know, while I was drinking, I felt really like larger than life, but, um, but I was drinking way more than I intended more often than I intended. And, um, you know, I would just like wake up with a crashing hangover and then promise myself that that night I wouldn't drink. Um, and, or maybe I'll just have one glass and, but then that glass would make me want another one. And, you know, before I know it, I'm like falling into bed with my makeup on again. Um, one there's, there, I came across an F Scott Fitzgerald quote that really rings in my ears and that became kind of like, uh, sort of like a, a, a mantra that just played in my mind again and again and again, um, which was first you take a drink, then the drink takes a drink, then the drink takes yeah. you. I love that quote in a terrifying way. I know. Right. And it, but it, it just, it really helped me to see that like, it is that first drink that, that that's, that's where I, you know, would go wrong. So, whew, um, anyway, um, I think, so what happened next, I basically, I started to I started to, I think I, I was maybe even unconsciously pulling back from things like those public events because they gave me so much anxiety um, and just choosing to spend time with people around whom I could drink the way I wanted. And they were all like wonderful people and they're still my friends, but um, I'm not saying I was like running with a bad crowd or anything. It's just that I, my world got smaller and I was hemming myself in because I was ashamed of the way I was showing up in the world. Um, and I have to just call myself out a little bit here too, because if this sounds like a high bottom problem, it's like, oh, you know, you just, it was just a lifestyle choice and it wasn't entirely positive. And then I just stopped you. It's like, no, that's, 
that is, does not tell the whole story. Um, I mean, just because I didn't, it, the, the, the seriousness, seriousness of my problem didn't manifest in huge cataclysmic like life consequences, but it was really serious for me. And of course, you know, there were still plenty of like risky moments. You know, I took risks, I embarrassed myself. Um, there were, you know, times when, um, you know, the, when I was just frankly wild yeah. <laughs> and um, did and did and said things that I wouldn't have sober and I wouldn't today. Um, and I think the main thing was just how out of control with it I was. I knew that I wanted to stop, even though I loved it, I wanted to stop and I couldn't. And that really frightened me. Yeah. And that went on for years, like after that point. Um, in fact, I think my very first time when I thought like, oh, I'm going to make an effort, I had been complaining about it to my friends for years, but um, I'm going to really make an effort. I woke up one Saturday morning in my bedroom in Vancouver, and I was just way too hungover to do anything except scroll Facebook, probably like with one eye closed. And Annie, I came across, you know, a Facebook ad for your course. Yay. And I was like, I'm doing it. <laughs> so, so I signed up for it and I did the, the video course and I didn't do it like perfectly. I spaced it out over like two months or something. Um, but I really loved your message. Mm -hmm. I really loved um, that this wasn't about, are you an alcoholic or aren't you? That it was about my own relationship to myself and yeah. how alcohol was getting in the way of that or holding me back from living the life that I wanted to live. And that was really, I think the first time that anyone had suggested to me that like, you don't have to be like, I don't know, like living under a bridge in order you know, to need to stop drinking. And so right, reframing alcohol, this as alcohol use disorder, um, and I didn't have to wait for my life to be completely destroyed. Uh, before making a change that was just it was just super eye-opening and it helped me to see that what I was doing and how I was living I was in conflict with myself I I wasn't in alignment with my own values I mean like I I have since left the newspaper now I'm a publisher of self-help books you know <laughs> so healing and growth and personal change recovery all you know making the most of your time on earth these are super super core values for me um and I just, I know that the way that I was drinking wasn't allowing me to, um, it wasn't in alignment with the impression that I wanted to make on other people and, um, and how I wanted to show up in the world. So, so I did your course for a couple, over the course of a couple of months where I was still sort of drinking along the way. Um, and it actually took another, like that was in 2017. So it took another like three years before I stopped for good. That is how deep it had its tentacles into me. I wanted to, I was making efforts and it still took years. Um, and it's so good for people to know and hear that, you know, I think people get so caught up in like, it has to be kind of one and done, but really just the door has to open. And then the only way you can fail it is, is if you stop or if you give up and it might take time and, and that's okay. Because I, I think that we have to sort of, um, this is, this is a poor choice of words for this, but we have to almost bottom out the possibilities, right? Like we have to almost try it enough times to really understand for ourselves that there's nothing left here for us. 
it's called like an extinction process Mm -hmm. where over time you try it enough times that you're like, no, there, there really is nothing left here for me. And then like, there's so much freedom on the other time of the other side of that process. Right. Yeah. What I think that I, so for me, that, that kind of the gradual nature of my quitting was important partly because yes, I was sort of titrating off the alcohol and, 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 or experiencing like diminishing returns and really getting aware of those diminishing returns. But I was also building my muscle for like getting accustomed to what it felt like to spend my evening sober. Um, and that took some time to get used to, you know, to, to really, um, you know, to, to really feel like acclimated to that. Cause at first it was just so jarring. I had been, you know, inebriated most nights for years and years and years. And, um, and it was weird. It felt like kind of cold and, you know, um, it, yeah, life was just too sharp and too real at first, but I did some good things for myself in this experimentation process. I started, um, I I did all kinds of stuff. I downloaded the daybreak app. I was on there all the time interacting with other people who were, you know, on their, for, on their day one, day two, I found it really hard to get past day three for me. Day four was like my, my falling off day always. Um, and, but I kept on trying. Um, I would listen to Andrew, Andrew Johnson, stop drinking meditation app, like every night. Um, I read Holly Whitaker's blog. Like I was on the podcast and I even, I even went to an AA meeting at that time, although um, it was not a good fit for me in terms of the group. And it freaked me out so much that I went home and drank a bottle of wine in 45 minutes. Like it was really, (laughs) (laughs) yeah, that's um, yeah. Uh, But anyway, after like a few months of this and a couple months after doing your course, I decided to really give it a serious go and try to just like have a big sober stint Um, and this actually happened to be, so my first night was a Friday night. Um, and it was also the week that Russell Brand's book recovery had just come out and I had ordered it. I pre-ordered it on Amazon in hardcover, which is a huge commitment for me. (laughs) And, uh, and I took it with me to the Korean spa where I knew there was no alcohol. Um, and I went in the steam, you know, and I lay on the warm jade floor and I read the book and I just felt all my feelings and I cried and it was just so magical. You know, it was, it was, it was hard. It was painful, but I also felt just this overwhelming sense of relief that I was finally giving this to myself that I had been crying out for, for such a long time. That was my first sort of so the beginning of my first sober stint, and it only lasted 30 days. You know, I, I, I was like pink clouds. Life is so great. And um, why didn't I do this sooner? And, you know, what this almost feels easy. And um, and then, of course, like you've heard this story so many times after like a month of that, I was like, well, that was easy and I loved it. So surely I can just have a glass of wine now because it'll be so easy to just yeah give it up again. <laughs> like, OK didn't work. Right. It was, was terrible. I just, you know, I spiraled right back down again. And then not too long after like the following year, um, I got divorced and it was a really tough divorce. So then I was like, okay, you know, (laughs) quitting drinking can go right out the window. I just, I just went right down, um, into all of my old comforts. Um, 
but I was more conscious this time. I knew what I was doing to my brain, my liver, my skin, you know, my heart. Um, and, and I realized that I was killing my own dreams and, um, you know, dimming my light. And I feel like, um, in a way like that was the scariest part of it, but, you know, I just, and then the, the end, the, the final chapter to my story is that um, the pandemic came along because all of this is not that long ago, right? Um, the pandemic came along, forced us all into isolation. And at, for, at first it was like, yay, you know, um, everybody's doing the um, quarantinis and it's so normal and it's fine. And, and so I was probably drinking more at the very beginning of, the, of lockdown. Um, but then lockdown actually became really kind of a blessing. So during my divorce, um, going through therapy and things, I had, um, I had really leaned into my self-care practices in a big way, just to get through the trauma of the, of the divorce. So I was doing, you know, daily walks and healthy food and journaling and meditation. And now with the lockdown happening, um, there were no dinner parties or, you know, restaurants to go to. And I was just like, wow, I am totally free to indulge in my self-care and mindfulness in a really big way. Um, so that was when I really threw the kitchen sink at my recovery. And, you know, I read every recovery memoir I could find. Um, I, I made Russell Brand my spirit animal to get me through Trader Joe's. <laughs> I would imagine that, you know, when I was pushing my cart through the, you know, the past the wine and the cider and the tequila and whatever else that he was just like right there with me. And I'd be like, okay, let's, let's get to the checkout without that. Um, so in the end it was, you know, it was intention and um, journaling and meditation and just like self, self love and self validation um, that got me where I needed to go. Um, so I started giving myself gifts <laughs> like I was like I'm giving myself a gift and I'm not talking about like retail therapy or buying stuff I mean like the gift of or I read the sober lush which is just like for anybody who's like a super sensory person who really or a sensuous sensual kind of a human um, I really recommend it um, because that was one of the things you know I, I love indulgence and so um, so I would give myself the gifts of like a beautiful cheese board just for me you know and um, yeah, the typical kind of baths and things, but also like the gift of like waking up to a clean kitchen, you know, yeah. or the gift of like, oh, I'm doing my skincare routine. <laughs> so just doing things for, for me. Um, and that was what got me through. So I, I was still kind of like having the odd drink through 2020, even with all of that, I was still building my muscle, getting used to really, really getting attached to those feelings of those sober evenings. Um, and they were so rich and so full. Um, and so I had my last drink on December 8th, 2020, which was now, you know, from the Spanish point, it was uh, almost nine months ago. Um, and, you know, that's not a long time, but I, I know that I've left it behind me. And I just feel every single day that passes, it's, uh, it's further and further in the rearview mirror. So since my last drink, I went through a sober Christmas, New Year's, um, a trip to Hawaii, Annie, my 50th birthday, <laughs> um, a trip to London to where my daughter still lives, um, back home to Vancouver, like, and I managed to, and I, and yeah, all of those situations would have been super triggering and made me, would have made me very much want to drink in the past. And 
and I, and I did not, and I did not miss it. So, um, so here I am nine months, almost nine months. <laughs> Congratulations. It's so amazing. Oh, it's so good. Um, yeah. I feel like when you, when you kind of know, you know, and so time, you know, it's, it's sort of irrelevant after that, that moment. I think we just have to sometimes try it over and over and over. We have to, oh, extinction. Like, yeah, right, right. And sometimes right before extinction, there's like a burst, like, you know, of activity or, or trying it or even drinking more. And, and so often we don't give ourselves kind of the grace in that, you know, and yeah, I'm wanting to test it to see if the hold is still really there. Um, you know, I think that that's what, um, or I, I remember like the first few times when I tried to give up, I felt like because I knew I was about to, I suddenly wanted to drink like all the drinks in the world. Like I could, you know, just to try to get, which is just unnecessary, by the way. <laughs> yeah, but you just need to go through those things to make it truly your own. Because if it's not your own decision, um, you know, it's never, it's never gonna, it's, it's so much better to be on that side of a longer process than it is to be sober, but mentally have alcohol still take up a lot of it. Yeah, totally. Just be in its grip. And that is what is so liberating is like, I do not feel like it's, it it has me in its grip anymore. And that this is actually, it's glad you brought that up because this is why I, I, I don't identify as an alcoholic and why AA didn't really work for me. The, the message of AA, the very, you know, is one of powerlessness, right? We admitted we were powerless over alcohol and again, I don't mean any disrespect for anyone who has found value and power, powerful, you know, who has gotten clean through AA. That's awesome. I know it's helped a lot of people, but um, what I, I didn't like the powerlessness and it's not about arrogance. It's about, it's about blossoming. Um, yeah. So I know that I become powerless after I have that first drink and then the drink takes a drink, yeah. but I am not powerless in my life. I'm absolutely not powerless in my life and knowing that and doubling down on, you know, doing things intentionally that make me feel good, turning away from what depletes me and turning toward what fuels me. Mm -hmm. And that is what has made it stick because that is just a, you know, self-fulfilling, um, virtuous cycle. And at the core of all of that is just the one key principle of, trusting yourself the most, you know, of allowing your voice to be the loudest in your own life. And, and I think that's another thing that if we are quitting because we should, or quitting based on willpower or because of fear, it isn't a moving toward decision, right? It's a moving away from decision. And, and, and there's value in that, like people change from moving away from pain or they change because they're moving towards pleasure. But when you allow the process to happen and you allow it to take as much time as it needs. And you, you come to a place of like, no, I'm just listening to me the most, right. Yeah. More than anyone else. And what I wanted, what I truly wanted had shifted. And once I was able to fully acknowledge and embrace what was most rewarding for me, then it was effortless. I think that if I had, if I had tried to quit from a place of deprivation Um, there, I mean, there's just, there's just so much self-flagellation in every slip. There's so, and I just didn't do that to myself. I mean, I, you know, I did, I, yeah, I I didn't beat up on myself a lot, you know, maybe a little, but, 
Um, but it was because I was so interested in healing myself and, and, and supporting my, my, my most important values and goals that became a firm foundation that I could stand on. And so I, think- I love what's happening in like the conversation around sobriety. Now I really, I really love this because it's just, it's just, it, not only is it more, um, joyful, but it's more effective. Yeah. Yeah. It is more effective. And I, and I think because it becomes a really firm internal decision. And I think the the thing where we get confused is we hear desires inside of ourselves, but they're not fueled by our truest self. So they're like false desires because they're fueled by the dopamine hit or by the quick fix or by numbing. And then if you let that play out with like, I just say it over and over curiosity without judgment, you slowly narrow in to, oh, wait, like, I don't actually want that. Like, yeah, it feels good in the moment, but then it has all this other stuff. So, so the net gain is actually negative. So yeah, exactly. And like, even now, um, I, I don't feel tempted to drink, um, but I still get, it's just muscle memory right now. It's just like, it's just, um, you know, being accustomed for all those years to that bitter, sour, or the, you know, the heat of alcohol, just the flavor of it, or, or the ritual of it. So that if, if there's ever been a moment when I was tempted to slip in the last nine months and they're like, honestly, I count them on one hand and they weren't, it was always about, um, it was always about giving myself that sensory experience or the ritual experience. But then I would ask myself, do you want to be inebriated right now? And the answer was always, no, I really, really do not. I don't miss that. So one thing I do now, um, and I know not everybody finds this beneficial, but, um, I've become like a massive, like crafter of non-alcoholic cocktails because I still love at the end of the day, like I work really hard all day. And at the end of the day, you know, I put on the news and I'm cooking dinner and I would love to have a a fiery, bitter, grown-up drink that is not the kind of drink that I have during the day. And so I make my, you know, there are so many awesome alcohol-free spirits out there. Tonic water is my jam, you know, like bitters, 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 and whatever it is to just kind of like give that astringent kind of hit on the tongue. And that's it. I don't actually want to be inebriated. I just want that experience, that ritual, that kind of pleasurable giving to myself in a way that doesn't rob anything from me. So yeah, that's, that that's been a big part of it is just recognizing, oh, this is just muscle memory. This is just ritual and sensory experience that I'm craving. I don't want, I don't want to be inebriated. And I really don't want to go back into that roller coaster. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yesterday a box showed up here because, um, people send me non-alcoholic drinks from time to time and it was curious elixirs. Mm -hmm. I tried it anyway. If you haven't tried them, they were really good. I have. I have. I think I've probably tried them all. And there are several <laughs> in the UK only that are that are that are really good and very, you know, they have like the botanicals and, and yeah. um and yeah, I personally I'm a big fan of that. I think that um yeah, it 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 just it it scratches the actual itch for me. And the actual itch in those moments is just it's about it's about flavor and ritual. It's not about the alcohol, the poison inside of it. I just don't need it. Yeah, and I'm so I'm so impressed because you look at the ingredients and they're still like organic very little sugar, no added sugar, 15 Low calorie a bottle. Yeah, exactly. Like they taste like they have all these, I guess they're called speed bumps so that it's a sipping drink, not a like right. orange juice would be like a chugging drink or like, a, you know, when I first stopped drinking, I would order Shirley temples with my kids and 
you know, I mean, it's just pure sugar. Yeah. I just don't want all that sugar. And then also, yeah, for me, it's about like having something. So some good, good, good substitutes include ginger. And Mm. I don't even mean like ginger beer or ginger ale. I mean like fresh ginger, you know, and, and also actually jalapeno. So something with a little bit of heat in it. Um, you know, my, my girlfriend and I, we have, uh, um, we have a, you know, a cocktail shaker and we'll make like beautiful kind of frothy, cocktails with you know and 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 yeah it's a sipping experience and that's something really um sensorially pleasurable oh that's so awesome that's so great um a few other things that you said that I thought just worth commenting on is when you were talking about you know being so aware of of the alcohol it's it's interesting hearing so many stories because they always bring me back to points in my own journey and I remember that too I literally remember you know calculating like, okay, there's four of us and we only ordered one bottle. And now that's like, is everybody else going to want another bottle? Can I order another bottle? Are we not ordering another bottle? Like it was just such a, like I, I was not in the conversation with the four people. I was literally calculating how, how was it going to (laughs) work? Yeah. And, and, and again, that feeling of, of, of deprivation, almost like, you know, am I going to get enough of what I need? And I know that this is, I'm going to, whatever we have, I'm going to want more. So yeah, yeah, that, that, yeah, it's, oh my God, it's just so nice. It's so nice not to have that as being part of any social experience anymore. Not only that, but um, I, I love knowing that I can drive myself to Mm -hmm. any kind of party or event and safely drive home. Um, and I, I know that, I mean, I love, um, I love, I love being able to have an intelligent, witty, articulate conversation until late at night. Um, you know, it's just, that is amazing. Um, so yeah, I don't know. I, I know that a lot of people who listen to your podcast are trying to figure out whether they can stop drinking and whether they should stop drinking And I just, I just want to encourage them to join the club because there are just a ton of cool, so sober people out there. Um, And, you know, they're creative and dynamic and beautiful and healthy. Um, And I think that, you know, when it was, it was hard for me to stop drinking because it was fun, like I said, and and maybe some other people out there can relate to it. Um, But what I have now is a more nuanced richer experience of fun. So I used to think that I was drinking to crank up my vitality and really feel alive. And what I now know is that actually it was a form of dissociation and that I wasn't actually extra. I didn't have extra vitality. What I had was an artificial exaggerated sense of energy um, that, you know, I was thinking about this the other day, like what to correlate it to. And it's almost like the difference between like a syrupy fake strawberry flavor, a chemical fake strawberry flavor versus the subtler, um, but more pleasurable experience of a real strawberry, which is kind of a little bit different each time you eat one. Right. And I, I just, uh, drinking became like, yes, it was fun, but it was exactly the same experience every single time. And I have had enough of it. And now I just want the real strawberry and, and I just want to experience, okay, who, who am I and who can I be? what is the version of myself that is free from, from, from this substance for the rest of my life? I love that so much. I love the strawberry analogy. It's such a good one. And I, I, 
what you said about drinking, just feeling the same every time, like it really did. It it felt the same to be drunk at, you know, a party as it did to be drunk at home on the couch, as it did to be drunk at a barbecue. Like it was all, it was all so similar and so the same. Yeah. Um, one of the and other- I think that the, the pandemic and the, you know, the isolation of that really hit that home for me. It's like, okay, I can either, you know, it's either wine with friends or wine with Netflix, but ultimately it's still wine and it ends the same way, yeah. you know, and it feels the same way because it takes you out of your authentic moment and puts you in a, a chemical state. Yeah. Yeah. It's so true. One of the things that you said that I thought was also really an interesting moment in your story is, um, you know, when you read the Russell Brand book and you're at the spa and just having that moment of almost grieving, and, mm-hmm. and I think that that's so important for us to like experience and honor, you know, like just, just realizing like, instead of making ourselves wrong and our past wrong and alcohol wrong, even. And, you know, one of the things that I talk so much about, um, is that I believe that people should create instead of behavior-based goals. So like, I want to be sober or I never want to drink again. Fine. Those are fine. Fine. But I think a far more useful goal is how you want to feel around alcohol, because that allows you to go through the whole process of testing and knowing, is this actually getting me to where I want to go? And by the way, it allows multiple options. So like when I said, I want to feel like alcohol is small and irrelevant. That's what I want. Mm -hmm. It allowed for the option that I might drink on occasion. And it allowed for the option that I might never drink again. And by making peace with both those options, allowing myself to mourn whatever it was and moving forward towards that feeling, I wasn't, I, I was never in a place where my brain was telling me it was wrong to drink because it was all just a testing process to get to where alcohol was small and irrelevant. And through that that. process, like freedom was really there because my goal, like I couldn't, I couldn't mess up that goal. But if you say my goal is being sober, then by definition, every time you drink, you're messing up the goal, but all those drinks were actually the path to the freedom. Yeah, I lo- yeah, and I love what you're saying about you know just uh, to you know t- testing it, testing it, and and um, and um, I think yeah, what that, that, that's exactly right. If you're if you're if you're truly so for me, my goal was to be, and I don't know if I articulated it quite like this, but I know that what I was trying to do was just to be awake and aware to my feelings. So it was just mindfulness. It was like, how is this really for me? Is this giving me energy or is this taking energy away from me? And so that's why I kind of allowed myself, I think, to go in and out of it for as long as I did, because there were some evenings when I would, you know, have a slip and I would be like, okay, there was nothing bad about that entire experience. I drank, I laughed, I had fun. I woke up and I felt okay the next day. So no big whoop, but, um, but I also knew that I also knew, you know, and I, and I needed to know that, but I also knew that I, but that, I, but that I, that I had spent four hours of my evening doing that. And was that really what I wanted to do with my evening? Were there other things and other experiences I could have? And, and just knowing that the value of occasionally having like a consequence free drinking evening was not big enough. That didn't add enough value to make up for the, um, the cost of, feeling like on, I was on a, a like a, a runaway train to wrecking my health, you know? <laughs> so that just, it just wasn't. And ultimately, you know what? It was, it was about my brain health as much as anything else. I mean, a lot of people say, you know, you hear the phrase all the time about like just wanting to switch your brain off at the end of the day. And I understand, you know, and I still want to kind of like disconnect from stress and work at the end of the day, but I, you know, by chemically switching my brain off, 
now that I'm, you know, also getting older, more mature, I'm like, that is the last freaking thing in the world I want to do is, is diminish my mental acuity and capacity. Like I, my brain is all I've got, you know, to kind of get me through this life and determines the quality of my experience in this body. So the last thing I wanted to do was, you know, um, handicap myself mentally. And, and so yeah, the odd kind of fun enough night, I just determined it's like, this is not worth it. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. I love that so much. Well, Maggie, let me ask you the question that I, I always close with, which is if you were going to go back um, to Maggie and, you know, sort of both the journey and before your journey even, even started and really just the regret of wondering what you said or did and <laughs> relying on auto charm, which I love. That's so funny. Um, what would you tell her about how life is now? Oh my goodness. Um, just that. <sighs> First of all, just a ton of compassion, a ton of compassion for where she is and how she got there and where all of these impulses are stemming from. I now, I just have a lot of compassion for myself around all of that. And the other thing I think would be, um, I'm not really a person that has regrets. And so I don't even necessarily think that I would say like, do it sooner. But I, what I would say is that everything in life is a trade-off. Yeah. Everything that we say yes to is a no to something else. Mm. And by saying yes to drinking again and again and again and again, I didn't realize how much I was saying no to. And mm. saying no to one thing, which is alcohol, has allowed me to say yes to so much more. I love that so much. I'm so true. And it's like, oh, it's just so well said. Everything we say yes to is a no to something else. And it's just like, we just have to choose our yeses better. Yeah. And um, and having so much compassion, which is the most important thing. Well, this has just been amazing, Maggie. Thank you so much for sharing your story. Thank you, Annie, for giving me the opportunity for all the great work that you're doing in the world. Um, I just know that uh, so many people are, are helped by by, by your wisdom and, and by your programs. Um, you're awesome. So thank you so much for, um, for having me on. Oh, thank you. Hey, I'm so excited because we are literally just about to start another live alcohol experiment. And if you don't know about the alcohol experiment, you need to literally drop everything right now and go to livealcoholexperiment.com. Here's the thing. This is a 30-day challenge and it's designed to interrupt your patterns and put you back in touch with the best version of you. You'll know it's that version that's living the most joyful life, that version that doesn't need alcohol to relax or have a good time, and that version that's having more fun and is more peaceful than ever. Again, it's just a 30-day challenge. It's live every single day. It's starting on the first, so hurry up. Join me at livealcoholexperiment.com. And as always, rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast as it truly helps the message reach somebody who might need to hear it today.